Welcome to Norse Mythology, the unofficial guide. It's unofficial because I'm neither a credentialed academic nor a time-traveling medieval Norse pagan, but I deal with this material directly from the sources, interpreted through the lens of the experts and their opinions. If you're looking for depth and detail in a simple and accessible way, then you're in the right place. Once upon a time, there was a great and wealthy man named Hreithmar, who had three sons, Falvnir, Ötter, and Regin. Favnir was by far the largest and fiercest of the sons, but he also had something of an entitlement streak, and he liked to think everything ought to belong to him. Ötter, on the other hand, was highly skilled at fishing, so skilled, in fact, that he had the ability to turn himself into a literal otter during the daytime, hence his name, and he spent most of his days swimming in a nearby river and bringing fish back up in his mouth. The youngest son, Regin, was skilled at smithing, and could make various kinds of useful things, out of everything from iron to silver to gold. Now, connecting to the river where Ötter used to go fishing, there was a waterfall owned by a dwarf called Anvari, who kept an enormous hoard of gold hidden there, and had been fated long ago by some, quote, wretched Norn to spend his days very similarly to Ötter, catching food in the river while taking on the physical form of a pikefish. One day, Three gods, specifically Odin, Loki, and Hunir, were traveling together, which is something you may remember we've seen this trio do before, and they came to Anvari's fall, where they found an otter eating a salmon it had caught on the riverbank. Thinking that this otter might make a tasty meal, Loki picked up a stone and killed it. Then together, the gods skinned the dead otter and continued onward. Ancient Germanic culture is known for hospitality expectations, and it was not unheard of in ancient times for a complete stranger to show up at your door looking for a meal and a place to stay for the evening. So it wasn't that strange when, a little later that evening, the gods came upon Hraithmar's dwelling and were welcomed inside. Whether Hraithmar actually knew who he had in his house isn't exactly clear, but once they were inside, the gods made the mistake of showing off their recent kill. Realizing that this dead animal was in fact their brother Ötter, Hreithmar and his two remaining sons, Favnir and Regin, seized upon the gods and demanded payment in compensation for their loss. In exchange for killing their family member, they demanded that the gods fill up the otter skin with gold and then pile a second heap of gold on top of it so that the whole thing would be covered. Well, the gods didn't have that kind of cash on them at the moment, so they sent Loki out to go find some. Loki immediately paid a visit to Ron, the wife of the Jotun Agir, who normally uses a special net to drag drowned sailors down into the depths of the sea. But on this occasion, Loki borrowed Ron's net and took it back to Andvari's fall, where he tossed it into the river and caught the dwarf Andvari swimming around in the form of a pike. Going back to our prior conversation about what it means when things are associated with other things in mythology, this is another instance wherein we see Loki associated with fishing nets. You may recall that the other instance is after he orchestrates Baldur's death and he's on the run from the gods. In that story, he invents the first fishing net while sitting by the hearth in the evening, whereas he is spending his days hiding in the river in the form of a fish. And now, here he is again with a fishing net, appearing alongside a character who hides out in a river in the form of a fish. Scholars will look at this and say, hmm, it looks like something is going on here thematically with regard to Loki and fishing nets. Where exactly does this meme come from? And that's sort of how that works. 
Anyway, on this particular occasion, after catching the fishy dwarf Anvari, Loki threatened to kill him unless he agreed to fork over his hidden hoard of gold. Anvari agreed to give up the gold, but there was one gold ring in the pile that he was reluctant to let go of, and he tried to hold it back and keep it for himself. Loki saw this and snatched the ring away, but Anvari replied by calling out, No! Not my precious! Just kidding, he didn't say that. Tolkien's version is a bit more colorful, but Anvari did reply with a warning. That ring, he said, will be the death of anyone who owns it. And then he slunk down into the rocks, back into the earth where dwarves usually dwell. When Loki returned to Hraithmar's house with the gold, the gods stuffed the otter skin full with it and piled everything else on top of it so that it was fully covered in a heap. But when Hraithmar looked a little closer, he noticed one little otter whisker still poking out from under the pile of gold, and he demanded that it be covered as well. At this, Odin drew forth that one last ring from his pocket, implying that already even the gods had attempted to keep this one ring for themselves, and he placed it atop the whisker. The saga informs us at this point that the ring has come to be known by the name Andvaranautr, which means Andvari's gift although gift seems a little bit tongue-in-cheek, if you ask me. We've paid you quite a bit here, Loki then said to Hraithmar, and possibly remembering what Andvari had said to him about the ring, he continued, but your son is still dead, and your own death isn't far off. And with that, the gods departed. Being the father of a slain son, Hraithmar had rights to the gold, but his eldest son, Favnir, was overcome by greed and entitlement and decided to kill his father. Instead of owning up to his actions and paying a guild as he should, however, he hid the body, thus making his killing a murder. He shared none of the gold with his younger brother Regan either. Instead, he packed it all up and set out into the wilderness to hide himself away from anyone else who might have intentions of laying their own hands on some of the treasure. Slowly, over time, his greed, and perhaps the treasure itself, began to corrupt him. As the years went by, Favnir became less and less a man, and more and more a dreadful and evil serpent, a dragon who spends most of his time greedily laying atop his mound of gold and only rarely slithering forth from his lair to get a drink whenever he needs one. Regan, meanwhile, now essentially destitute, traveled to the home of King Hjalprek in Denmark with hopes of becoming the king's royal smith, and ever since then, gold has been referred to in poetry as the otter's ransom. Which brings us to the present moment in the Volsung family line, and one thing you should know about this moment is that it marks a subtle change in the storytelling. From here on out, not a single person who dies in this story, of which there are many, will end up in Valhol. Whenever we're told where a dead character goes from this point on, they will always be relegated to hell. We left off at the end of the last episode with the famous Volsung hero King Sigmund dead in battle against an invading king's force, and his pregnant wife Hjordis having been rescued and taken back to Denmark under the protection of Prince Olver to deliver her baby. And as we begin today, that baby, the most famous of all Norse heroes, great-great-great-grandson of Odin himself and great-grandson of a Jotun Valkyrie, Sigurdr is born. Sigurdr is presented to Alfr's father, King Hjalprek, who is pleased with the baby's piercing eyes and makes a prediction that once he's grown, there will be no one who can be considered his equal. And then something really fascinating is mentioned, which is that the child is sprinkled with water and officially named. At first glance, you might think the author is inserting a bit of his own Christian worldview here and talking about baptism. And you might be right, but scholars are a little bit torn on this idea. 
Zimek notes that some kind of post-birth water-related ritual is so common in Indo-European religions that we actually ought to be surprised if there wasn't one mentioned in the Germanic record as well. Additionally, whereas Christian baptism is normally called skira in Old Norse sources, this ritual is called by another name, Ausavatni. The idea, as portrayed in the sagas overall, is that a newborn child would be taken onto the knee of their father, or the closest thing to a father that was available, and be sprinkled with water while given a name. And then afterward, the child had full rights of personhood. They could no longer be left outside to die from exposure, which was a thing people did on purpose sometimes back in those days. And if murdered, they had to be avenged, either by paying a full wear guild or via, you know, standard avenging. The saga tells us that everyone eventually has the same thing to say about Sigurdr, which is that no one was his match in terms of conduct and size. He grows up in Denmark, being raised, legally speaking, by King Hjalprek, and although Volsunga Saga doesn't say too much about his childhood, you may remember that back in episode 30 we talked about Thidrek Saga, where Sigurdr appeared in childhood alongside Wayland the Smith under the tutelage of Mimir, who in that story was portrayed as a master smith living in Hunland. Wayland must indeed not have been a match for Sigurdr in terms of conduct or size, because in that story, Sigurdr was a bully who used to beat up on Wayland all the time until Wayland's father brought him back home. In Volsunga Saga, Sigurdr is explained as possessing more strength, accomplishment, zeal, and valor than, quote, any other man in the northern world. Even though we've just been told he was raised by King Hjalprek, the king must not have had much time to deal with Sigurdr personally because he ends up more directly under the care of the king's personal smith, a man named Regin, who the saga names as Sigurdr's foster father, and who is the same Regin that at this moment has a dragon for a brother hiding out in the woods somewhere. So even though the details are different, we do have a persistent Sigurdr theme where he is tutored by a smith in his youth, whether that's Mimir or Regin. In this case, Regan teaches Sigurdr how to play sports and board games, how to read and write with runes, and how to speak several different languages. He also perpetually tries to subconsciously get Sigurdr to worry about how wealthy he is. He asks him whether or not he completely trusts the men who guard his father's money. He points out that Sigurdr dresses like some kind of vagrant, and asks why he spends all of his time tending to some other king's horses. Sigurdr replies that he's part of the royal family and can take any horse he wants for his own at any time. And Regan suggests that Sigurdr should prove this by asking the king for a horse, which Sigurdr does. And as he predicted, the king invites him to go choose whichever one he wants to keep as his own. The next day, Sigurdr heads out into the woods, presumably on his way towards the king's stables to pick out that horse, where he runs into an old man with a long beard. Hopefully you all have figured out by now that any time somebody runs into a mysterious old man with a long beard, it's always Odin. And this principle is true here as well. The old man asks Sigurdr where he's going, not too dissimilar from the mysterious old man in the forest in the Ashlad folktale we talked about back in episode 32. And Sigurdr replies that he's on his way to pick a horse, and would be grateful to get the old man's advice in the matter. The old man replies by suggesting that the two of them should take all of the king's horses and drive them into a nearby river. Sigurdr decides this is a great idea, and together the two of them drive all the horses into the river, whereupon all of them but one quickly swim back to shore. 
The implication, I think, is that the one horse left in the water is not bothered by having to swim around or doesn't get tired as easily as the others or something along those lines. The steed still in the river is a young, large, high-quality horse with a gray coat whom no one had had the pleasure of riding yet up to this point. The old man explains to Sigurdr that this horse is descended from Sleipnir and must therefore be raised very well, because if so, he will become better than any other horse in the land. The old man then promptly disappears, because he's Odin, and Sigurdr names the horse Grani, which is like a weird derivation of the word for mustache hair, Gron. At this point, Regan approaches Sigurdr again, and this time he just comes right out with it. You aren't wealthy enough, kid, he says, and you run around like some kind of messenger boy. But I happen to know a place where you can get your hands on a ton of gold and gain loads of glory for yourself in the process. If you're interested, that is. Of course, Sigurdr is interested, and he asks Regan to tell him more. Regan replies that there's a great serpent. I should mention here that the word we're using in Old Norse is orm, which can mean worm or serpent or dragon, all depending on the context. But there's a great serpent named Favnir, guarding a pile of gold bigger than anything you've ever seen at a place called Gnitteheather, and he- I know who Favnir is, Sigurdr says. Everyone knows who Favnir is, and I also know that no one dares challenge him because of how enormous and ferocious he is. Regan answers, no, 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 no. He's more like a, like a grass snake. Yeah, a, a grass snake. And people make a way bigger deal out of it than it really is. Plus, I thought you were a Volsung. But hey, I guess if you don't really have the Volsung spirit, then now hold on a second, Sigurdr says. Maybe you're right. Maybe I don't have the skill or the valor of the Volsungs that came before me. But you don't have to be a jerk to me about it. Where's all this coming from, anyway? Why are you pushing on me so hard to go challenge Favnir? All right, I'll come clean, Regan replies. Here's the deal. Once upon a time, I was living in a house with my father and my two brothers, one of whom used to be able to transform into an otter. And Regan tells Sigurdr the whole story. When it's over, Sigurdr determines that Regan has been treated unfairly by his vile kinsmen. And he says, You're a great smith, Regan. Make me a sword better than any sword that has ever been made. If you do this, I'll use it to do great deeds, and I'll use it to kill your dragon brother. And Regan agrees to the task. Sometime later, Regan approaches Sigurdr with a brand new shiny sword. Okay, let's see how good of a smith you really are, Sigurdr says, and he picks up the sword and strikes it against an anvil, where it immediately shatters. And Regan heads back to the forge to try again. When he comes back with a second sword, Sigurdr strikes it against the anvil again, and it breaks again, just like the first one. This isn't presented in the saga as a situation where the two of them are just working out how to make a sword better and better over time. Instead, Sigurdr actually accuses Regan of being untrustworthy like his forefathers at this point. The idea seems to be that Regan is not exactly putting his whole heart and soul into making a really great sword. But Sigurdr has an idea. His father once owned a sword called Gramr that had been given to him by Odin, stuck in a tree trunk. It was the finest sword ever made, and it only broke when Odin himself broke it in half with his own spear on the battlefield. And as it so happens, his mother still has the broken pieces of Gramr. So Sigurdr approaches his mother, and he asks for the two pieces of the sword. She gladly gives them to him, and predicts that this sword will win him great renown. But first, it needs to be repaired. So Sigurdr takes the pieces to Regan and says, Here, try again. 
and this time, make a sword that's at least worthy of the fragments I'm giving you. Regan is super mad at how Sigurdr is treating him, but he finally puts everything he has into reforging Grammar, and when he pulls it out of the forge, it's so bright and glowing that it looks to the other smithing apprentices like flames are just leaping out from its edges. He completes the sword, brings it to Sigurdr, and stakes his entire reputation on this one not breaking. Sigurdr takes the sword and again strikes it against the anvil, which this time is easily cloven in two like butter all the way down to the base. And then, in an episode strangely reminiscent of Thithrak's saga, Sigurdr tests the sword again by staking it down into a river and tossing a tuft of wool into the water upstream, which is then sliced cleanly in half by the blade as the water gently moves it against the sword. All right, says Regan, you have your sword as promised. Now it's time for you to hold up your end of the bargain and go kill Favnir. And I shall, Sigurdr replies, right after I avenge my father's death. So Sigurdr goes to visit his mother's brother, a guy by the name of Gripir, who has the ability to see into the future and discern what people's fates would be. In fact, there's an entire poem about this in the poetic Edda called Gripispo, and there is a particular quote at the end of that poem that many of you have emailed me asking about. So if you want the full details of their conversation, I recommend you go read that poem. But as per the saga, Sigurdr asks his uncle Gripir to foretell his fate. Gripir hesitates for quite a while and beats around the bush, until finally Sigurdr is able to pressure him into just coming right out with it, whatever the bad news may be. And at this point, Gripir relates to Sigurdr every major event that will befall him for the rest of his life, his successes, his failures, and even the tragedy of his own death. But Sigurdr is undeterred. He is the quintessential Norse role model, a hero who makes no attempt to run from or change his unchangeable fate, but will rise to meet it, as the Norse would have said, like a man. At the end of the conversation, he replies, Mun not skopun winna, you can't win against fate, and he rides home to proclaim to his foster father Regan that as soon as he avenges the death of his father and his other relatives who fell in battle, he will be ready to kill Favnir as he previously promised. Now, let's talk about that quote one more time, because I know if I don't do it here, I'll just end up doing it in a bunch of emails later. The quote was Munnat Skopum Winna. Munnat is spelled M-U-N-A-T. Sometimes you'll see a dash before that A-T at the end. Skopum is S-K-O with a little hook under it, or umlauts instead if that's easier, P-U-M. Vinna is V-I-N-N-A. This is actually a grammatically nuanced little phrase, and my translation simplifies it into easy English. Moon, in this context, means like to intend to do something, or like to be of a mind to do something. It's in the third person here, and the suffix ot makes it negative. So moon not becomes sort of like a person can't or doesn't intend to do something. Skolpum is dative plural, and it means shapes, which in Norse poetic language refers to those things that the Norns have shaped, or in other words, the fate that they've crafted for all of us. And then vinna has all sorts of related but highly contextual meanings. To perform, to accomplish, to struggle, to toil, to gain, and to win. So, a more literal translation here might be something like, one can't intend to struggle or prevail against what has been shaped for them. Or, as I like to say it, you can't win against fate. 
So Sigurdr approaches King Hjalprek and asks for an army to support him in attacking and defeating the sons of Hunding and King Lingvi, the man who slew his father, and Hjalprek essentially grants him everything he asks for. A huge fleet of ships is prepared, and they set out to sea with Sigurdr in the lead. For the first few days, the wind is fair, but suddenly they're set upon by a fierce and foul storm that churns up the sea and causes it to foam as if it were with blood. And because all the best saga stories steal ideas from each other, Sigurdr does just as his older brother Helgi did before him. Rather than lower the sails in the face of the storm, he orders them raised all the higher, undeterred by the fierce wind and waves. As the ships come by a certain craggy headland, they notice an old man standing near the shore, who calls out to ask who is at the head of this army. The men respond that they are led by Sigurdr, son of Sigmund, who by now had already become the most famous of young men, somehow. The old man replies, Oh yeah, that guy! Everyone says that no king's son is his equal. Do you guys mind if I hop aboard one of these ships with you? The soldiers agree to pull up alongside the rocks and let the old man enter one of the ships. When he does, they ask him his name, and he responds by saying, quote, As Hnikar they hailed me when Hugin I gladdened, and when, O young Volsung, I vanquished. Now you may address the old man of this rock as Feng or Fjolnir. From here I would take passage. End quote. So, this is very obviously Odin again, although, as usual, nobody seems to realize it right off the bat, and from the moment he enters the boat, the storm immediately subsides and the sea is calm. Does that mean Odin is now also the god of storms and wind and the sea? You tell me. But the rest of the ride is calm until they reach the kingdom of the sons of Hunding, and so-called Fjolnir suddenly disappears. Immediately, Sigurdr and his army, quote, unleashed fire and iron, killing men and burning settlements, destroying as they went, end quote. And as they ravage their way across the country, people are fleeing to King Lingvi to tell him what's happening, how he and his brothers had made a huge mistake in thinking they could wipe out the Volsungs, because now Sigurdr is here and his army is obliterating everything in its path. Lingvi summons up men to arms from throughout his kingdom, and when the two armies finally clash, just like every other battle described in this saga, it's the fiercest battle in history. Spears and arrows are flying, axes are swinging, shields are splitting, armor is breaking, helmets are cracking, skulls are splitting, and many men are falling to the ground. Sigurdr himself, wielding the sword Gramar, is hewing down men and horses left and right with every swing and every step he takes, his sword completely unobstructed by any sort of armor and covering both of his arms to the shoulder in other men's blood. Like a scene from a moderately well-received yet forgettable action movie, people begin running away from the sight of him as he advances at the front of his troops, so that King Lingvi and his brothers decide to gang up on him personally. Sigurdr takes a swing at Lingvi, and in yet another scene shared with Thidrek's saga, his sword cuts straight through the helmet, down through Lingvi's head, and down through his armored body. Next, he cuts Lingvi's brother Hjorvard in two pieces, and likewise easily kills the other sons of Hunding, thus winning the battle and securing for himself his first taste of real glory. He heads home to Denmark and is met with victory banquets, having amassed great wealth and prestige. But once he's been home only a short time, who should approach him again but Regan to remind him that he still has an important task to undertake. Specifically, he says, you still need to strike the helmet from Favnir. And that phrasing is important. We'll come back to it. 
Sigurdr replies, as any decent Norse man should, I will fulfill my promise. It will not escape my thoughts. Sometime later, Regin and Sigurdr ride up to the heath where Favnir was known to crawl whenever he needed to slither away from his gold for a drink. Sigurdr notices that there is a cliff here, 30 fathoms high at the spot where the water lay, and there are also enormous grooves cut into the ground by the movement of the dragon's body. A grass snake, huh? Sigurdr says to Regan, probably pretty incredulously. Look, this is easy, Regan replies. Just dig a ditch and hide in it, and then when Favnir slithers over you, just poke your sword up and stab him in the heart. Come on, man. Oh, but if I do that, the dragon's blood's going to spray all over me, Sigurdr presses back. Well, you'll never be able to take advice from anyone if you're scared of everything, Regan answers. I guess you're not really like other Volsungs after all. And then he immediately runs off in fear, leaving Sigurdr to dig himself a ditch. And as he begins to dig, another mysterious old man with a long beard happens along the way and asks him what he's doing. Sigurdr explains the plan, and the old man says, This is a terrible idea. What you really need is lots of ditches, so that when all the dragon's blood sprays out, you don't end up drowning in it. Trust me, dragons have a lot more blood than you realize. And then wouldn't you know it, the old man just up and disappeared. So strange. Who could it have been? So Sigurdr finishes digging his ditches and hides in one to wait until along comes Favnir, who is so big and mighty that the earth quakes all around him as he begins to slither close. As evil serpents in Norse mythology are wont to do, he's blowing poison all over the ground in front of him as he moves. But none of this is scary to Sigurdr, who is far too manly to be afraid of a literal giant dragon indiscriminately spitting poison all over the place. Instead, he waits quietly in his ditch until the moment when Favnir's immense frame begins to slither over him, and then BAM! He plunges his sword deep into the dragon's body, all the way up to the hilt. As blood begins to spray into the ditch, or system of ditches, Sigurdr leaps out and pulls his sword from the wound. Favnir lashes out in pain, thrashing his head and tail around violently and destroying everything that he hits. But as he realizes he's been dealt a death blow, he takes the opportunity to start a weirdly long conversation with Sigurdr, the details of which are contained in the Poetic Edda in a poem called Favnismol, and which seems to exist both as a lore encyclopedia and as a compendium of awesome quotes by Sigurdr. But the short version is that Favnir wants to know who his killer is and who put Sigurdr up to this deed. Don't you know that everyone is afraid of me and my Agis Hjalmar, the Helm of Awe, he asks? You may have heard this phrase before, and you may be familiar with an Icelandic sigil roughly in the shape of some bicycle spokes that has often been labeled the Helm of Awe. But if you'll recall, Regan has asked Sigurdr to, quote, strike the helmet from Favnir. This is the origin of the Agishjalmur, and in this context, it's a literal helmet that the dragon is wearing. It's not a magic symbol. In fact, that symbol that some of you may be familiar with actually only dates back to 1847 in a book called the Hold Manuscript, and it appears to be an evolution of similar magic symbols that were floating around in occult circles in continental Europe for some time before that. It may have been named the Agishjalmur, or Helm of Awe, but the symbol itself is not actually derived from ancient Norse culture or religion. Favnir even brags a little bit about his helmet during this conversation, and Sigurdr takes the opportunity to point out that the helmet isn't really all that great. 
Anyway, Sigurdr answers Flavnir's questions and adds in this really cool quote. A hard mind whetted for me this deed, and I was supported in it by this strong hand and this sharp sword, which you are now familiar with. Few are bold in old age who are cowardly in childhood. End quote. Before the conversation ends, Favnir passes the same warning on to Sigurdr that he received years ago from Loki, who in turn received it from the dwarf Anvari. This gold that was mine will be your death, as it will be the death of anyone who owns it. But Sigurdr's reply is everything we ought to expect from a Norse hero. Everyone wants to be wealthy until their final day, he says, and everyone has to die sometime. And then Favnir finally dies. After the whole ordeal is over, Regan comes striding merrily out of wherever his hidey hole was and says, oh hey, looks like you won yourself a great victory there. But then he has this really interesting little emotional moment where he stops and stares at the ground for a long while and then solemnly announces, you have killed my brother, but I am hardly blameless in this deed. Sigurdr, meanwhile, is wiping his sword off on some nearby grass and replies to what Regan has just said as though it sounded to him like Regan was trying to take some kind of credit for killing Favnir. You ran off and hid while I did this deed, he says. It was me who used this sword and tested my own strength against the dragon. Well, you might never have been able to do that if I hadn't made the sword for you, Regan retorts. A fearless heart serves a man better than a sharp sword. Sigurdr then answers in yet another of his many action hero quotes, but Regan goes back to his initial emotional state and replies with deep sorrow, You have killed my brother, and I can hardly be considered blameless in this deed. At this point, the poetry and the saga disagree a little bit on what happens next. In the Poetic Edda, we now see Regan, who, by the way, the intro to the poem Regansmal calls a dwarf in size, now cut the heart out of the dragon with his own sword he calls Rithil. In the saga, it is Sigurdr who uses Rithil to remove Fafnir's heart, and Regan begins to drink some of Fafnir's blood. Presumably, the two have now set up a camp next to the giant serpent's corpse, because Regan then makes an odd request of Sigurdr. Will you go to the fire, he asks, and roast Fafnir's heart so that I can eat it? Sigurdr obliges and begins cooking the heart on a spit, while Regan lays down to begin napping. After a while, the juice begins to form out of the heart, and Sigurdr touches it with his finger to see whether or not it's done and ready to eat. But when he puts a little bit of the blood from the heart into his mouth, something unexpected happens. Seemingly out of nowhere, Sigurdr suddenly acquires the ability to understand the speech of birds. In fact, he starts picking up on a conversation between a few birds sitting together in a nearby bush. Check out Sigurdr over there roasting Favnir's heart for Regan, one of the birds says. He'd be better off eating it himself. If he did, it would make him wiser than any other man. And check out Regan laying on the ground over there, says a second bird. He plans to betray Sigurdr the first chance he gets. Sigurdr should go ahead and cut Regan's head off, speaks a third bird. Then he could keep all the dragon's gold for himself. Not only that, says a fourth bird, but after taking the gold, he should ride up to Hinderfjell, where the Valkyrie Brynhildr is laying under a magical sleep spell. He could learn some pretty great wisdom from her. A fifth bird chimes in now. He's not as wise as I thought if he spares Regan after killing his brother. And a sixth bird as well. Yes, the smart thing to do would be to kill Regan and to take the treasure for himself. Hearing this conversation, Sigurdr realizes that the birds are right. Dragon or no dragon, Favnir was Regan's brother. And if someone murders your brother, you have to avenge them. 
Reagan would have known this going into the situation, so Sigurdr decides that Reagan will need to depart this world the same way his brother Favnir did. He draws the sword Gramar and slices off Reagan's head. Then he eats a bit of Fafnir's heart, packs some up to eat later, and heads off to the serpent's lair where he finds more gold than three horses could carry at a time. But Sigurdr doesn't have three horses. He has one horse, Grani, who is, of course, no ordinary horse. Sigurdr places the Helm of Awe, a golden suit of chainmail, another special sword called Hroti, and all the rest of the gold into two large chests and somehow straps them to his horse. But Grani refuses to budge until Sigurdr himself also jumps onto the horse's back, the implication being that the horse is so awesome it didn't want to be insulted by Sigurdr thinking it was too weak to carry all the gold plus a rider. And then, with Sigurdr on Grani's back, they ride off toward Hinderfjell, where one of the birds had mentioned a sleeping Valkyrie could impart some great wisdom. Upon coming close to Hinderfjell, Sigurdr turns south towards Frakland, the land of the Franks, and ahead of him, on a mountain, he sees a great fire burning, reaching all the way up to the sky. Undaunted, he rides Grani up the mountain and straight through the fire, into a hall where he finds a wall of shields with a banner flying above it, which appears to be surrounding something special. He pushes his way into the shields and finds a man lying there dressed in full armor, but the man appears to be asleep, so Sigurdr removes the man's helmet to discover that this is not a man at all, but a woman wearing a coat of mail so tight that it almost seems to have grown into her flesh. Sigurdr is able to slice through the armor with Gramr as if it had been cloth, and once the encroaching armor is removed, the woman awakens, and the two introduce themselves. The woman explains that her name is Brynhildr, and that she is indeed a Valkyrie, but she's also just a human woman. We are told later on in the saga that she is actually the sister of Attila the Hun. She ended up in this predicament because Odin had promised victory in battle to a man named Hjalmgunnar, but she decided to strike Hjalmgunnar down instead. In revenge, Odin pricked her with a sleeping thorn and cursed her that she would never again have victory, but that she would have to marry. But Brynhildr then swore a counter-oath that she would only marry someone who knew no fear. Sigurdr is then interested in the mysterious wisdom that Brynhildr possesses, and she responds by having the long conversation with him that is recorded in the Eddic poem Sigurdrifumol. You should read it, but in short, she teaches him a good number of magic spells involving runes, as I've talked about on the show before, and follows it up with a heaping helping of obvious good advice, such as be wary of other men's wives, and be careful if you're traveling on a road where evil creatures live, don't break your oaths, and don't trust the kinsmen of someone you've already killed. By the end, Sigurdr is convinced that this is the wisest, most knowledgeable woman he's ever met and is absolutely smitten. In classic Norse fashion, he eloquently confesses his heartfelt, undying love and proposes a lasting marriage to her by saying, quote, I swear that I shall marry you, for you are to my liking. Brynhilda replies that, quote, I would most prefer to marry you, even should I choose from among all men. End quote. And with this, they pledge vows to each other. Later we learn that at this moment, Sigurdr gives Brynhildr the ring on Varanauter as a token of their pledge, and then he rides away. The next few chapters in the saga are a disjointed mess of courtly medieval romantic 
gibberish that contradict other information we've been given and appear completely out of the ordinary for what we would expect from Norse literature preserved from the pagan era, so we're not going to cover them in detail. There's one chapter devoted entirely to what a perfect and beautiful physical specimen Sigurdr is. The next two tell a weird story where Brynhildr has come home to her father's palace and is portrayed as a shield maiden who fights in wars, regardless of the fact that we've just been told Odin cursed her to never again have victory, and Sigurdr doesn't even really seem to know who she is as this part of the story begins. And then after that, we get a couple chapters dedicated to nothing but giving us spoilers for the rest of the story in the form of some dreams being interpreted. But getting back to something I think is probably closer to the original story, we need to introduce another king named Gyuki, whose flourishing kingdom is south of the Rhine. Have you noticed, by the way, just how much of this story actually takes place on mainland Europe rather than in Scandinavia? Gyuki has three sons named Gunnar, Hogni, and Guttormer, as well as a daughter named Gudrun. They're all characters of Germanic legend, so of course they surpass everyone else in terms of attractiveness and accomplishment, except for maybe Guttormer, who is at this point just a very tiny little kid. Gudrun herself is the most famous maiden in all the land, and King Gyuki is married to a woman named Grimhildr who is well-versed in magic. She's basically a witch. Sigurdr rides Grani, still packed with all of that gold, until he reaches the hall of King Gyuki. When he rides through the gates, one of the men there remarks that Sigurdr looks a lot like a god coming in to visit. A huge, handsome guy on a huge horse, decked all in gold with exceedingly fine weapons. So Gyuki comes outside to ask who this guy is, and Sigurdr introduces himself as the son of King Sigmund. And Gyuki welcomes him into the hall warmly, where the story takes yet another opportunity to tell us that everyone else was shorter than Sigurdr. Sigurdr ends up making friends with Gyuki's two older sons, Gunnar and Hogni. But of course, he is able to surpass them in all sorts of accomplishments. Now, the queen notices how rich and famous and perfect Sigurdr is in every respect, and she starts thinking that he might be a perfect match for her daughter Guthrun. The only problem is, all Sigurdr ever talks about is this other girl named Brynhildr, who he's already sworn to marry. And so, like other conniving women in Volsunga Saga, Queen Grimhildr, who is well-versed in magic, hatches a plan. One evening, when everyone is sitting together drinking, Grimhildr offers Sigurdr a horn full of mead. We're all just so happy you're here, she says. Here, take this horn and drink it, and Gyuki will be your father, and I will be your mother, and Gunnar and Hogni will be your brothers. Sigurdr takes the horn and drinks it, but doesn't realize that the queen has done something nefarious and magical to this drink. Because from that moment onward, he is no longer able to remember Brynhildr or his vows he made with her at all. Not long after, the queen approaches her husband Gyuki and says, Isn't this Sigurdr guy great? You should offer Gudrun to him in marriage and give him a bunch of money so that he stays here as part of our clan. King Gyuki thinks this is actually a little weird, because the way things are supposed to work traditionally is that a man is supposed to make a journey to visit the king and request a daughter's hand in marriage. But ultimately, he decides that there's no lost honor in doing things the other way around. So two and a half years later, Sigurdr is still hanging around, and he's already started taking a liking to Gudrun on his own, when the king and his sons finally make the official offer. They tell Sigurdr that they want to do everything they can to encourage him to stay with them for a long time, including granting him positions of authority and Gudrun's hand in marriage, which Sigurdr gladly accepts. 
They all swear a pact of blood brotherhood, and there is a magnificent feast throne that lasts many days wherein Sigurdr and Guthrun are married. Afterward, life settles into the perfect peaceful state, which in the Norse mind means that Sigurdr, Gunnar, and Hogni spend all of their time traveling and killing other king's sons in battle and performing all kinds of bold deeds. Sigurdr even shares a little bit of that old dragon's heart with Guthrun to eat, which makes her a bit more grim and wise than she'd been before. But the queen apparently just can't help herself from making trouble, so one day she approaches her son Gunnar and says, You know, you seem to be prospering in everything you do, but don't you think it's high time you got married? I happen to know of a certain lady named Brynhildr that would make a perfect match for you. Why don't you ride out to see if you can marry Brynhildr? I'm sure Sigurdr would be glad to go with you. Gunnar thinks this sounds like a great idea. So he asks his father and brothers and Sigurdr about it, and they all encourage him to go for it. So Gunnar, Hogni, and Sigurdr set off on their journey to woo Brynhildr, riding over mountains and through valleys until they reach the kingdom of a man called Boothli, who in this story is Brynhildr's father, which also makes him the father of Attila the Hun in Volsunga canon. In other sources, Boothli is a Swedish king whose daughter marries a son of the Hunnish king. Remember, all these sagas are trying to piece together fragments of very old oral memories of events that transpired in centuries long forgotten already by the Norse period. They end up mixing and matching names, but many of the events in these tales, like Volsunga Saga, Alsmunder Saga Kapabana, Thitherek Saga, and even the German Nibelungenlied, do seem to point towards some kind of common origin somewhere in the migration period. Anyway, Boothley ends up thinking that a match between Gunnar and Brynhildr does sound like a good idea, but there are two problems. One, they really need to go talk to this other guy named Hamir instead, who has been serving as Brynhildr's foster father. Also, Brynhildr is too proud to let the decision of who she marries be made by anyone other than herself, and she's already vowed that she will only marry a man who is brave enough to ride through the blazing fires that still surround her hall. So Gunnar is going to have to go to her hall in person, find a way to get through the fire, and then see if she likes him enough to marry him. So the three of them ride off to visit Hamer, the foster father, who tells them basically the same thing. Just gotta get through those flames and see what happens. The three brothers, technically two biological brothers and one blood brother, next make their way to the flame-ringed hall belonging to Brynhildr. Sigurdr has fallen into this burning ring of fire once before, but no longer remembers it, and the other two are now facing it down for the first time. Knowing that he has to get through it, Gunnar spurs his horse forward, but as it approaches the flames, it stops and shies away from them. Why'd you stop, Gunnar? Sigurdr calls out, and Gunnar replies that his horse is too afraid of the fire. Could I maybe borrow Grani and see if he'll jump through it? He asks, and Sigurdr obliges. But Grani is a stubborn horse that pretty much always refuses to move at all unless Sigurdr is riding him, so Gunnar finds himself unable to get through the flames. We all know that Grani could get through the flames if he wanted to, though, which leaves only one obvious solution. Sigurdr and Gunnar are going to have to magically trade physical appearances. Oh, didn't I mention that Queen Grimhilder previously taught them how to do this? No? Oh, well, that's probably because neither did the saga author until this very moment. So, ipso facto minimo magico, and Sigurdr now looks just like Gunnar, sitting atop the brave stallion Grani. 
He spurs Grani forward into a run and leaps into the flames. There's an enormous roar and the fire swells up to the heavens. The earth shakes all around him and then suddenly it's over. The flames subside behind him and Sigurdr is able to dismount his horse and stride into the hall. Inside the hall, Sigurdr, in the guise of Gunnar, finds Brynhildr sitting like a swan on a wave amongst beautiful decor, dressed in a coat of mail with a sword in her hand and a helmet on her head. She asks her visitor to introduce himself, and since Gunnar is supposed to be the one asking for Brynhildr's hand in marriage, Sigurdr introduces himself as the man he currently looks like. I've already spoken with your father, he says, and I have ridden here through the flames to ask for your hand in marriage, but to let you decide for yourself. Though I might add that if you agree, I'll give you tons of cash. Now, Brynhildr has already vowed to marry Sigurdr, and we will be told shortly that she has not forgotten about this. But it has been two and a half years since she's seen him. So she replies, Gunnar, if you want to marry me, you're going to have to surpass every other man and kill anyone and everyone who's ever asked for my hand in marriage, very clearly referring to Sigurdr himself. I have accomplished many splendid feats, she continues. I've stained my own weapons with the blood of men, and this is not something I've stopped desiring. Well, Sigurdr pretending to be Gunnar answers, I heard that you made a vow to marry anyone brave enough to get through those flames outside, and uh, here I am. This puts Brynhildr in a complicated position. She did indeed vow exactly that, and although she's pledged herself to one man already, he's given no indication that he ever plans to return, and here's another man right in front of her who fits the criteria of her original vow. Well, you got me there, Brynhildr replies after a moment, and she stands up to receive him warmly. He ends up staying with her there in the hall for three nights, sleeping in the same bed with her. But of course, Sigurdr has already married Gudrun at this point, and our courtly medieval authors can't have us thinking that anything untoward may be going on here, so Sigurdr unsheathes the sword Gramr, and he lays it between the two of them on the bed they share to prevent any funny business going on. Brynhildr asks why he's doing this, and he comes up with the excuse that he's been told it's a celebration of his marriage to her, and he's fated to die if he doesn't do it. But perhaps to appease her for the moment, he removes the ring on Varanauter from her finger and replaces it with a different ring, also from Fafnir's hoard. After three days, he hops back on his horse, rides back out through the fire, swaps appearances back with Gunnar, and declares his success. That same day, Brynhildr finally leaves her flame-encircled hall and goes to visit her foster father, Hamir, to explain the situation and ask for advice. She tells him in no uncertain terms that she remembers the oaths that she previously swore to Sigurdr two and a half years ago, but has found herself in this conundrum with Gunnar. Hamir tells her that the best thing to do is just go forward with the plan to stay with Gunnar for now, and Brynhildr drops a shocking bombshell on us that her original time with Sigurdr when he came around that first time actually resulted in a daughter, who is named Oslaug, who will now need to remain with Hamir to be fostered by him. This will be an extremely important point to remember at some point in the future when we talk about the saga of Ragnar Lothbrok, but for now, we can just forget all about it. Anyway, the brothers head back home. All the preparations for the wedding feast are made. King Boothley shows up with Brynhildr and Attila, who, by the way, is actually remembered in Norse sources by the name Atli, and the proceedings go on without a hitch. Except, now that Brynhildr has married Gunnar, Suddenly, the magic clouding Sigurdr's mind dissipates, 
and all the memories of the vows he made to Brynhildr come rushing back in as his wife Gudrun sits by his side and as he looks on towards Gunnar and Brynhildr enjoying their wedding. Surely Brynhildr must remember those vows as well, but she hasn't said anything, and bringing it up now would cause untold amounts of problems, so Sigurdr chooses to just remain silent. But although the saga does a poor job of directly tying the ring on Varanauter to the tragedies resulting from its ownership, those tragedies will come to pass regardless. Sometime later, Brynhildr and Gudrun head out to bathe in the Rhine. You'd think that simply taking a bath couldn't possibly result in a whole heap of death and destruction, but unfortunately, Norse noblewomen are just as obsessed with status as the noble men are, and sometimes it comes out in the stories as passive aggression, especially when one of those women got to marry the guy that the other woman wanted to marry instead. On this particular occasion, Brynhildr just wades out a little farther into the river than Gudrun, which Gudrun interprets as a passive-aggressive slight, and asks Brynhildr what exactly this is supposed to mean. Well, technically we're not equals, Brynhildr replies. I mean, my father is more powerful than yours, and my husband has accomplished lots of splendid feats and rode through the flames and stuff, and your husband was basically raised as a servant of King Hjalprex. It would be wiser for you to hold your tongue than insult my husband, Gudrun replies. Everyone agrees that there has never been anyone like him in the whole world, and let's not forget, he killed an actual dragon. You are just jealous because he was your first man. Oh, and by the way, when you thought your husband Gunnar rode through the flames to win you, that was actually Sigurdr in disguise. He took that ring he once gave you off your finger and put it right here on mine. See? At this point, Brynhildr looks at the ring on Gudrun's finger, recognizes it as Andvaranauter, and turns pale as death. She doesn't say another word to anyone for the rest of the evening. When Sigurdr eventually comes to bed that night, Gudrun asks him whether or not he knows why Brynhildr has been acting so gloomy all day. He answers that he doesn't know, and Gudrun continues that she can't understand why Brynhildr can't just be happy with the wealth she has and the husband she has. I mean, after all, she got the husband she wanted, didn't she? I imagine Sigurdr kind of awkwardly trying to play dumb at this point, as he asks, So, uh, when exactly did Brynhildr say she got the husband she wanted? Gudrun replies, I'll tell you what, tomorrow morning, I'll ask her if there's anybody else she would have rather married than Gunnar. I highly recommend you don't do that, Sigurdr is now forced to say. I feel like you'll wish you hadn't have done that if you do it. But at breakfast the next morning, Brynhildr is still acting glum, and knowing full well that Brynhildr is jealous over Sigurdr, Gudrun decides to poke at her a little bit. But Brynhildr takes this very seriously and ends up telling Gudrun that she's going to pay for marrying Sigurdr, to which Gudrun replies that Brynhildr is already better married than she deserves. Brynhildr mentions that she might have been able to be content if Gudrun hadn't ended up with a nobler husband, and Gudrun responds by pointing out that Gunnar is such a wealthy and noble man himself that if you think about it, who can really say which of the two is actually nobler? Their conversation continues like this for a while, in this, uh, Bechdel test failure of a way, with Brynhildr just getting angrier and angrier, blaming Gudrun for her actions, and Queen Grimhildr for the magic ale, and all sorts of things like that. Finally, she becomes so upset that she goes to her bed and refuses to leave, acting as though she were sick. 
When Gunnar hears about this, he wants to go check in on his wife and make sure she's okay. But at first, she refuses to speak to him until she sees that he's intent on getting some kind of communication out of her and he's going to keep persisting until she talks. And then suddenly the floodgates open and she starts going on and on about a completely different version of events than we've previously been told about her decision to marry Gunnar. In this version, Gunnar and his brothers had threatened to burn her father's kingdom to the ground if Gunnar had been refused Brynhildr's hand in marriage, and Brynhildr herself had even offered to lead a third of the army in defense. But ultimately, she decided that if the man riding Grani could ride through the flames, she would marry him, and this would be better than so much needless bloodshed. But more importantly, she says to Gunnar, Sigurdr has killed a dragon and five kings, and is way better than you, Gunnar, who blanched like a corpse instead of riding through the flames yourself. You and your mother have turned me into an oathbreaker, and I fully intend to bring about your deaths. Gunnar responds by calling her a liar and insulting her time as a Valkyrie, and she flies into a rage and tries to kill him, but she's caught by his brother Hogni, who puts her into chains. But in the end, Gunnar has too much affection for Brunhilder to want her to have to live in fetters, and he has her let go. Brynhildr, though, spirals out of control from this point on. She swears never to be happy again, rips a tapestry that she has in her room apart, opens her bedroom door, and just starts screaming and shouting constantly so that everyone throughout the stronghold can hear her yelling about how unfair her life is and how everybody has cheated her all the time until finally she goes silent and acts as though she's asleep, which is how she remains for the next seven days straight. During that time, Gudrun recognizes that things have gone too far, and she tries to get one of Brynhildr's servants to go get her to come out of her room so that the two of them can maybe do some needlework together or otherwise find a way to try and be cheerful, but the servant refuses to go anywhere near Brynhildr. Then Gudrun convinces Gunnar to go see if he can rouse his wife, but he can't do it either, and even Hogni tries to visit her as well and has no success. Even Sigurdr is asked to see if he might have better luck getting through to Brynhildr, but he refuses to visit her at all until the following day, when he realizes that Brynhildr is likely planning to murder everyone and will probably end up dying herself when everything is said and done. Remember, Sigurdr has known all of this was coming since his entire life had been prophesied to him by his uncle Gripir years ago. He chats with Gudrun about his suspicions, and she's able to convince him to pay Brynhildr a visit. When he does, she finally starts speaking again, and it becomes fully clear here that she has gone completely off the deep end. She explains that she hates everybody and everything, and that she once loved and wished to marry Sigurdr, although now she wishes that she could kill him for his part in her betrayal, and Sigurdr, who knows his own fate, replies that she only needs to wait a few days longer until he's dead, but if she will agree to live and love Gunnar, he will give her all the treasure he has. Her only response is that she believes he must have really grown to hate her if this whole thing is how he has chosen to treat her. Sigurdr replies that in reality, he loves Brynhildr more than anything, but that he too was deceived by Grimhildr, and there is no way to change the events that transpired because of that deceit. Every moment since his mind was recovered, it has pained him that Brynhildr couldn't be his wife. It's just that there are laws, on top of social expectations, that have to be upheld at this point. There wasn't anything he could do about it. 
But I love you so much, he tells her, that if you'll have me, I'll divorce Gudrun and marry you. At this moment, Brynhildr realizes for the first time that her love for Sigurdr has actually been reciprocated all this time, which pretty much just makes her feel all the worse. I don't want you, she says, or anybody else. And Sigurdr silently leaves her room. He passes Gunnar on the way out and tells him that Brynhildr is now awake if he wants to go in and see her. So Gunnar heads in to try to speak with his wife, but all she's willing to say to him is that Sigurdr has betrayed everyone and she herself has no more desire to live. The next day, Brynhildr has decided to actually leave her bedroom for the first time in over a week, and Gunnar thinks he may have more success trying to talk to her again now. This time, she gives him an ultimatum. Either I go home and stay with my family in sorrow forever, or you kill Sigurdr and the son he has with Gudrun, which we are just now learning about. This is a real problem for Gunnar, because on the one hand, he's sworn a pact of blood brotherhood with Sigurdr, and breaking that would be horribly dishonorable. But on the other hand, to be left by his wife would also be considered horribly dishonorable in his cultural context. And in the end, he decides that having his wife leave him would be the greater dishonor of the two options. He determines that Brynhildr is more precious to him than anything else in the world, and he would rather lose his own life than lose her. So he approaches his brother Hogni with this dilemma and asks him for advice. We can't very well kill Sigurdr ourselves, Hogni says, because of the oaths we've sworn. Plus, Sigurdr is a huge asset to our family. He's a great guy. There's the money. There's the prestige. But I get it, man. Your wife has stirred up a serious problem, and it looks like there's disgrace and destruction in it no matter how you slice it. Then Gunnar gets an idea. Oh yeah, we have a little brother named Gutormer, who was too young to swear any oaths to Sigurdr back when you and I did. Let's get him to do it. That is a terrible idea, Hogni replies. We're still going to get blamed for betraying Sigurdr if we put our little brother up to it. Look, Hogni. Gunnar explains, Brynhildr said I'm not allowed back into the bed until I get this done. Ugh, fine, Hogni says. Then we just need a way to make it look justified. How about this? Brynhildr slept with Sigurdr back before he ever met us, right? So that means we can say he violated her maidenhood, and that's a felony punishable by death. We can get Guttormer to kill Sigurdr based on this. The brothers then summon Guttormer and offer him tons of golden power if he will do this dastardly deed for them. They give him snake and wolf flesh to eat, mixed with ale, as well as, quote, many other kinds of witchcraft, indicating that this may be a fragment of a memory of some kind of pagan pre-battle magical ritual. And by the time all the magic spells have been cast, little Guttormer has become a raging, violent machine. Sigurdr, meanwhile, quote, did not expect such deceit, he could also not prevail against either his fate or his death." End quote. The next morning, Guttormer enters Sigurdr's room, twice while Sigurdr is still resting in bed, and apparently that magical rage he was in the night before has worn off to some degree because both times he chickens out when Sigurdr looks at him. But the third time he goes in, he finds that Sigurdr has fallen back asleep. Quietly, he draws his sword and then brings it down fast against Sigurdr, slicing through flesh until the sword impacts the bed beneath him. 
He tries to run, but Sigurdr wakes up from the wound, grabs his own sword Gromer, and hurls it down the hallway after Guttormer and slices him in half. Guthrun, who had been sleeping in Sigurdr's arms, awakens to screams and blood everywhere and begins freaking out, but Sigurdr, not yet dead, turns to her with words of comfort. He again reminds her that no one can escape their fate, and assures her that he has always kept all of his oaths to the best of his ability and that he never once was unfaithful to her with Brynhildr. When he finally dies there in the bed, Guthrun lets out a mournful wail that can be heard all throughout the palace, and when Brynhildr hears it in her own room, she starts laughing. Gunnar, who is there with her at the time, is disgusted by this and calls her a vile monster who deserves to see her own brother die before her very eyes as well. Over the course of the day, conversation ensues between Brynhildr, Gunnar, Hogni, and Gudrun, and at some point, Brynhildr seems to snap out of the fit of murderous mania that had been gripping her for the last week, and she begins lamenting and crying over Sigurdr's death. She reiterates her version of events wherein she was forced to marry Gunnar against her will and finishes off by saying that she now wishes to die. Gunnar rises up and throws his arms around her neck and begs her to go on living, as does everyone else in the family, but no one is able to dissuade her from setting her heart upon her own death. She has a huge pile of gold brought out and starts just giving it all away for free to anybody who wants some, and when she's done, she takes a sword stabs herself in the side with it, and lays down on her own bed to die. Before completely fading away, she prophesies a bunch of spoilers to Gunnar about everything that will come to pass in his own future, and then finally makes one last request. She asks that one large funeral pyre should be raised for both herself and Sigurdr, and for the others that were killed with him, meaning specifically Guttormer, and Sigurdr's son with Guthrun, whose death we did not get an explicit account of. And surprisingly, we're going to admit right out loud here that our old pagan ancestors used to sacrifice slaves to die alongside their masters. Brynhildr requests that there should be some tents reddened with the blood of men, and then Sigurdr, who Brynhildr here calls, quote, a Hunnish king, should be burned at her side with her own men on the other side, with two men lying at his head and another two laying at his feet, as well as two hawks. In between Sigurdr and Brynhildr, there should be laying a drawn sword, representing the sword that he placed between the two of them in their bed. And in this way, the afterlife procession won't be considered unworthy if Sigurdr is followed into hell by five bondwomen, eight of Brynhildr's attendants, and the others who were killed alongside him. Sigurdr's body is then prepared according to, quote, ancient custom, whatever that was, and the pyre is prepared exactly as Brynhildr had requested it. And from here... I'm going to finish out the chapter with a direct quote from the Bayok translation. Quote, When it was fully kindled, the body of Sigurd, the bane of Favnir, was laid on top of it, along with his three-year-old son whom Brynhild had ordered killed, and the body of Guttorm. When the pyre was all ablaze, Brynhild went out upon it and told her chambermaids to take the gold that she wanted them to have. Then Brynhild died, and her body burned there with Sigurd. Thus their lives ended. End quote. And you may think that this is where the saga ends as well, but you'd be wrong. However, this is a great time to take a break from it, now that we've gotten through all of its most legendary heroes. But even though we may be taking a break from Volsunga Saga for the moment, there is still plenty more to come in the meantime on Norse Mythology, The Unofficial Guide. 
Sources for this episode include Dictionary of Northern Mythology by Rudolf Zemeck, 2007, The Saga of the Volsungs, translated by Jesse Byock, 2004, supplemented by some of my own translations from the source text, The Poetic Edda, translated by Caroline Larrington, 2014, and The Prose Edda, translated by Anthony Falks, 1995.